0: Hello and welcome to the Toxpod. I'm Peter Stockham. In this episode of the Toxpod, we talked to a few people that were at the recent Factor conference Dimitri Gerostomoulis, Narun Gunja, and winner of the best oral presentation, Susan Britzer. Let's see what they have to say. Here we are at Factor in Brisbane 2022. We've got Dimitri Gerostemoulis, the outgoing president of Factor. How are you going, Dimitri? I'm well, Peter. How are you? Very well. It's been a fantastic meeting. We've had some fantastic uh, speakers that you've brought in. Uh, Thomas Kramer was well worth having here for three plenaries. He had uh, so much to say. He was so generous with his time, and he was just so humble in what he was saying. He was doing always ready to talk to people.
1: Yeah, I think uh, Thomas having Thomas here was a real bonus because um, I only asked him a few months ago because we had some difficulties with our keynote speakers um, particularly our international. We always like to have an international keynote speaker. Uh, and Thomas answered the call, and uh, he gave us three terrific talks. So one was on sort of current state of postmortem toxicology and some of the um, developments in that space in terms of looking at endogenous markers that may help us to identify some postmortem changes. And then he spoke about hair, of course. You know, I mean, He's been doing a lot of hair work for many, many years. Yep. And today, I must admit, I was challenged because the machine learning stuff, while... Well, there have been applications of that in pathology, potentially, none in our field. Yeah. And, you know, when he put up all those algorithms, I sort of took a step back and thought, oh my gosh, there's something else I've got to learn.
0: Yeah, that's right. And he's across all of it, isn't he? It's incredible.
1: Pretty amazing. Yeah. So having him here for the three days was super. We had Sam Bannister here who gave a wonderful presentation on the development of, you know, synthetic material, particularly trying to develop some of those or using some of those drugs for therapeutic purposes um, he gave an excellent talk we also had we had vicky kotsurillos who is arguably australia's largest prescriber of medicinal cannabis and she gave us an in- insight into some of the difficulties and also her approach uh, and some of the challenges around uh, medicinal cannabinoids and then of course olaf drummer yeah who gave us a talk on, you know, the risks of driving with some of these cannabinoids. So I thought, you know, the program was pretty good with the keynotes and we've had wonderful oral presentations and a good handful of posters here.
0: Factor holds a special place in your heart, I guess. You're one of the founding members and you really were pivotal in getting it organised across Australia. It you? does, it does.
1: Um, and I've put a lot of time and effort, as many of the committee members have, but, you know, it's, it's now... A forum or a meeting that people really look forward to getting together—that's for sure. You know, and there's um, there's work that's been done by FACTOR in terms of some of the committee stuff. So, around pill testing, around NPSs, uh, around hair testing. So we're trying to set our own sort of standards for a, a local a local approach to some of these issues. Sure, there are international stuff, but we want some sort of local uh, approaches to yeah, these things.
0: Locally relevant information.
1: Yeah, to Australian and New Zealanders.
0: Well, Thank you very much, Dimitri, for your passion over the years and getting this association up and going and your support of the ToxPod, of course. And uh, we'll be speaking to you soon, I'm sure.
1: Terrific. Thank
0: you. Thanks, Peter. Okay, here I am with uh, Naren Gunja. He's uh, Associate Professor at the Clinical and Forensic Tox in Western Sydney Health. How are you going, Naren? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you, Very Get good,
2: very good.
0: You gave a couple of talks this conference, one with a very intriguing title called Hydroxymoron. Can you tell us a bit about that one?
2: Yeah, we um, have been seeing quite a few interesting cases and unusual presentations during the pandemic and I thought I'd bring to the attention uh, of this cohort of toxicologists some of the unusual toxicology presentations and uh, overdoses that we were seeing during the pandemic. Um, COVID brought a whole bunch of weird and wonderful Uh, drugs out into the fall. And uh, we had patients who were prescribed or buying on the internet uh, things for COVID that um, we hadn't seen much of in the past. And hydroxychloroquine was one of those things. It started off as something that might have been promising early in the pandemic as a potential treatment for COVID. It was soon proven to be otherwise and not useful. However, high doses of chloroquine, much higher than in other therapeutic settings, uh, was being consumed by users on the internet, uh, as well as patients who were taking it for other reasons like arthritis, and they were having overdoses and and having toxic effects of hydroxychloroquine, hence the title of my talk.
0: Yes, and ivermectin was amongst the mix as well?
2: Yes, ivermectin's had quite a bit of press in the last uh, 12 months or so, also had some very um, uh, dubious reports of uh, benefit from uh, ivermectin therapy in uh, covid again proven to be false Uh, but uh, patients were buying ivermectin on the internet and they were being peddled by various um, practitioners as well as some um, registered practitioners who uh, were not reading the science and were prescribing ivermectin inappropriately And uh, we saw some of these overdoses in Western Sydney as well. And uh, ivermectin caused a gastrointestinal upset, but uh, we also saw patients who were taking ivermectin with steroids and having um, toxicity from that as well.
0: And your second talk was on trends in the the emergency department. What happened over the COVID-19 pandemic?
2: Yeah, look, overall, we had waves that mirrored uh, some of the COVID waves. Um, During the wave itself, there was a lot of recreational drug use and presentations from recreational drug toxicity. But then after the wave and uh, the the movement restrictions went away, we had uh, pent-up demand for mental health services. um, And uh, both toxicology as well as mental health in Western Sydney saw an uptick. After the wave of people um, having anxiety and depressive symptoms, there was also quite a bit of delayed diagnosis happening because patients weren't going to their GP and getting their usual checkups, um, their usual um, smears and and um, other tests that they normally would get as a preventative screening. And uh, we saw uh, quite a bit of delayed diagnosis during this period. We also saw that. Um, Social media seemed to have a uh, enormous influence over what people did, um, how they reacted to various treatments as well as on drug policy from institutions and the government. Yeah,
0: certainly a, a different period for us, but... I'm pretty sure it's mimicked around the world as well, isn't it, this sort of trend?
2: Yeah, I think um, worldwide there's been similar uh, trends based on how much COVID they experienced as well as how much restrictions they experienced. Certainly Australia had less COVID, but a lot of uh, restrictions on movement. Yeah. It's been a
0: good conference. There's been a lot of uh, clinical input as well as forensic input, and it's really good to get the two groups of people together every every couple of years.
2: Yeah, it's been a fantastic conference. Um, we've got people from all different facets of uh, drugs toxicity here, clinical, forensic. Uh, we've got people from racing, people from uh, wastewater, um, and looking at it from all different angles. So it's been a fantastic collaboration of these people. Yeah,
0: workplace testing in the, in the mix as well. It's been fantastic. And you've been a big supporter of Factor all, all the way along, right here.
2: Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much, Norman. Cheers.
0: Okay, and now I'm speaking with Susan Britzer, and she won the best oral presentation at the recent Factor meeting with her talk entitled In Vitro Demonstration of Herbal Exacerbation of Paracetamol-Induced Hepatotoxicity. Welcome, Susan.
3: Thank you, Peter. It's great to be here.
0: You had a very interesting talk. Um, It obviously had an impact on the people organizing the conference because you won. So from the title, you're basically looking at toxicity of paracetamol and how herbal medicines can affect that. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, that's correct. Um, A lot of my research has been focused on traditional Chinese medicines specifically, um, but I had a really big interest in how the use of herbal medicines could potentially impact on commonly used pharmaceuticals and paracetamol being one of the most used pharmaceuticals on the market. It was almost natural to think, well, if we're taking paracetamol fairly often, what could products like herbal medicines potentially do to that Toxicity that could develop.
0: Often, if someone's feeling ill and they go to the doctor and the doctor asks them what medications they're on, they probably won't mention the herbal medicine. Is that the case?
3: Yeah, it seems to be a pretty big trend even now, even though herbal medicines are becoming quite popular in the general public. Um, There's still a stigma that's attached to the use of herbal medicines and other complementary medicines where people don't feel comfortable disclosing their use to their general practitioner or don't even see a need in disclosing it because there's that perception of these are natural, they're safe, they're not going to be doing me any harm and no one really needs to know that I'm taking it. But the reality is there could be potential harm happening by not disclosing them and particularly with interactions that could occur from multiple herbal medicines or multiple complementary medicines, and in particular with other pharmaceuticals that could be prescribed. And we we see that often with pharmaceuticals potentially interacting with herbal medicines.
0: And often people in um, the toxicology sphere dealing with conventional drugs often think that um, herbal medicines aren't actually active. They're actually a traditional medicine for a reason. They do have some sort of effect. So often herbal medicines do have some sort of effect, whether it's a remedy or not, it's another thing. And So there's obviously active ingredients in there and which have been often well researched, but their interaction with conventional medicines is really understudied, isn't
3: it? Yeah, it appears to be. Um, There's always a lot of talk about, you know, there's that potential for interaction, but it's difficult to ascertain from herbal medicines because they are just so complicated um, compared to conventional medicines when there's usually one, maybe two active ingredients compared to herbal medicines where there could potentially be hundreds of active ingredients that are either eliciting an effect or causing an interaction. They're, they are a very complex variant of medicine. And they were used for a particular reason traditionally. And I guess that's where we're falling short in that sense of research is that we just don't we can't interpret how that traditional application works in the modern era.
0: This is a common theme, isn't it, with other presentations we had, especially the um medicinal cannabis, where because it's not a proprietary product, um, people aren't willing to invest lots of money into researching these medicines so um, because anyone can use the results. Uh, so it's a similar thing with lots of herbal medicines, but maybe we're getting off the track a little bit. So tell us about which herbal medicines you were looking at in, and their interaction with paracetamol.
3: Yeah, so the three herbs I was looking at the most were Ceralia coralifolia uh, Astragalus propinquus, and Atractalodes macrocephala um big mouthfuls of names. Um, but essentially the latter two are typically involved in health maintenance and cold and flu remedies. Um, and Seralia coralifolia is also involved in uh, a number of different tre- treatments, more frequently known to be in dermatological treatments, things like vitiligo, dermatitis, things like that. Um, but it can be commonly found in other health maintenance and again, cold and flu uh, remedies. Um, mainly for its antipyretic effects that it has on the body, which, you know, a bit of a flag there where paracetamol is often taken for its antipyretic and analgesic effects as well. Um, Mm. So, yeah, there's that potential issue with um, these particular herbs. They are common in these remedies for these treatments, and paracetamol tends to be our first course of treatment for those conditions as well.
0: So paracetamol toxicity is quite complex by itself. So maybe we should just go through the mechanism of that before we talk about the interaction with herbs. How does that work?
3: Yeah, so paracetamol is typically uh, metabolized primarily in the liver. It undergoes uh, metabolism through glutathione conjugation, where it forms a detoxified metabolite and it causes very little damage, if any, to the liver. Um, But it can also go through a toxic development through CYP3A4 and CYP2A6 enzymes, uh, where it forms into a toxic intermediate uh, which can cause liver damage in uh, if it reaches high enough levels. Similarly, an active ingredient in Seralia corallifolia follows a similar metabolic pathway to paracetamol um, in the sense that uh, glutathione conjugation detoxifies Seralin, whereas uh, if it goes through the CYP3A4 enzyme pathway, it causes a toxic intermediate and causes toxicity. So again, if you if you happen to be taking paracetamol with these herbal medicines, you could potentially be raising, uh, saturating the mechanisms that detoxify these products and then increasing the level of toxic intermediates, which could cause damage to the liver or other organs within the body as well. So and we, have we're very been, familiar with paracetamol.
0: That's right. And there have been published accounts of situations where they suspect there was an interaction with these herbal medicines and paracetamol to result in some pretty severe and some fatal interactions with the liver, resulting in liver transplants um, unsuccessfully and then death. So uh, this is sort of where this work's come from. So what's the best way to determine whether a drug is toxic to the liver?
3: There's a number of different methods that you can use. Um, a good standard is to start off with in vivo models, particularly in a cell line Model that's representative of the organ structure that you're looking at. In this particular study that I presented at FACTA, it was looking at a liver model using a hepatocellular carcinoma cell line or HepG2s, which are a pretty good standard for liver models. We use a, a base standard of an MTT assay, which is a colorimetric assay which shows cell viability, so basically showing us some level of toxicity. So you grow them in a plate. A 96 well plate um, with growth media, and then you expose those cells to increasing concentrations of whatever chemical or product that you want to investigate. Um, And then, of course, you read them under an absorbance microscope, and it gives you a a rough indication of the number of viable cells within uh, (laughs) within the wells, um, which gives you a good indication as to whether or not the cells are actually alive and whether or not toxicity is being present. So. In other words, greater cell viability, more cells present, the MTT dye goes quite dark, less cells present, less dye, and you can't see as much uh, absorption under the microscope as well.
0: So it's a pretty good way to get a quantitative idea of how toxic a a particular chemical may be. So tell us about the experiments that you did.
3: Yeah, so I, I think I mentioned earlier that the herbs we were looking at, we particularly wanted to see if there was any... Likelihood of interactions with paracetamol. So, we first exposed our cell models to our predicted hepatotoxic chemicals, which were paracetamol and serralin, which is the active ingredient in serralia coralifolia. What we found was, of course, paracetamol can cause toxicity in our liver models, um, but what we also found was serralin was surprisingly a bit more toxic than paracetamol in our cell models as well, which was a good indication of potential interactions happening there because if you've got a really hepatotoxic chemical with another, it's not going to end up well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so on top of the paracetamol toxicity that was already occurring in your assay, you also got some additional synergistic toxicity with the Solarin.
3: Yeah, so yeah, we really wanted to just see if there was any interactions going on there that were measurable. And what we found was uh, there definitely was some kind of Uh, synergistic interaction happening between paracetamol and soralin when we put them together so we were using uh, a non-toxic concentration of soralin just to ensure that we weren't accidentally just seeing some kind of additive interaction occurring Um, and when we placed it in with increasing concentrations of paracetamol we could see that when compared to paracetamol alone there was a significant increase in cell death that that could be observed and it was it's quite alarming at the volume, uh, sorry, the magnitude of um, difference between paracetamol alone. And then once we added that small dose uh, concentration rather of sorolin with paracetamol.
0: So in these um, bioassays that you're using, do you have to add, is the media that you're using, has it already got glutathione in it? Or do you have to add that separately? Because it's you suspect it's a glutathione that's being depleted so that then stops the detoxification of both agents.
3: Yeah. So the media that we have uh, the growth media does contain some levels of glutathione, so it acts, It would be able to put somewhat representative nature of what the liver could look like under normal circumstances. Um, one of the interactions we didn't uh, quite investigate was depleting the glutathione completely um, in the presence of paracetamol and soralin, either combined or individually. But the media does contain some level of glutathione, so we can have that accurate representation of what the liver environment would look like.
0: So the concentrations that you're using in your liver models, in your liver hepatocyte models, they reasonably similar to what you'd find um, in the body if someone was taking both of these drugs?
3: The concentrations that we investigated probably do seem a little high to some people, but we just that's one of the questions that we just don't know the proper answer to, and that's mainly because we don't know what the accumulation of these herbal products have within the human body. There has been studies that have shown uh, the concentration of soralin in soralea coralea is that the concentrations that we have used is representative of the concentrations that you'd find in any given potential, any given Seralia coralifolia product. Um, So the the concentrations here are what you could potentially find in any herbal product um, containing Seralia corallifolia, but uh, we can't 100% say it because there's also the issue with batch variation and variation in plants because plants grow very differently and we can't control Depends on the season, depends on the soil, depends on everything um, when it comes to plant growth.
0: Also, it depends on whether there's actually the right herb in that herbal preparation too, doesn't it? Because there can be some pretty poor preparations out there too.
3: Yep. Substitution is a real danger as well as um, contamination or just inadvertent um, misidentification of products as well.
0: Is this the first sort of study that's shown um, this sort of interaction between this particular drug and paracetamol?
3: Uh, to the best of my knowledge, yes. Um, there has been uh, case reports usually around paracetamol-based uh, interactions with herbal medicines. Um, there's been reports of cases with paracetamol with products like Ginkgo, which have shown increased bleeding um, and other abnormal bleeding events. There has been some links with paracetamol with a similar chemical to serralin in Kamarin, uh, where similar uh, anticoagulant effects have been observed. So not necessarily soral in itself, but it, a sister chemical in Camarin has shown some level of interaction, but not to this magnitude before.
0: That's quite significant. So, where to from here for this research? Is it going to move on to any further studies?
3: Yes, uh, I would love to be um, investigating the actual, herb, like the proper herbs themselves, in an in vivo model, um, just to see if they're if the herbs themselves. We're, we're looking at the active ingredients and. Um, There's very little known about the bioavailability of most of these products and what the accumulative doses could result in um, within a model as well. So I'd love to be looking at the three herbs that I looked at in this research in particular uh, with paracetamol in an in in vitro model because it it might show a different representation. The bioaccumulation may have a greater effect on the level of toxicity that we observe. So, yeah, next step would definitely be in vivo models um, shortly, hopefully.
0: Okay, that sounds very exciting. So you're nearing the end of your PhD studies?
3: Yes, yes.
0: (laughs) All the best with that, and we hope to hear you again on the ToxPod. Thank Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Okay, so that concludes our coverage of Factor 2022 in Brisbane. Hope you found it interesting. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Oh, yeah, that needs some work.
2: Registration is now open for the 61st Annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.